Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read just a part of the story of Elizabeth, beginning at verse 2. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But, behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Father God, we thank you for the life of Elizabeth, and as we analyze it today, I pray that you would give me grace to preach it faithfully and each one of us to grow through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have long ago been convinced that there is nothing that happens by accident. It's not by accident that uh, John was sick today. Uh, it's not by accident that a leaf falls from a tree. Uh, uh, <laughs> the scripture says every leaf that falls, you know, is uh, uh, by God's design. In fact, uh, every hair that falls from your head it cannot happen without the Father. And uh, that means you can have confidence in your bald spots uh, because it's the Father's will. Uh, it all comes from Him. And in this story, we're going to be seeing that God was preparing the way for Jesus to be born long before this event. Uh, if we had time to look through the genealogy, uh, you would see a perfect crafting of the genealogy of Jesus uh, by bringing broken and rejected and hurting people to be embraced by God in the Old Testament be part of the lineage of Christ so that they could anticipate this is the kind of people that Jesus is going to save. 
God ensured that Mary and Elizabeth would be cousins without in any way jeopardizing the lineage of uh, Jesus to David and of John to Levi, two totally different tribes. And there are two theories of how this could happen. Uh, one is that Elizabeth's mom was from Judah and was adopted into the tribe of Levi. And the other theory is that Mary's mom uh, was from Levi, was adopted into the tribe of Judah. Now, if the latter is true, then it means that Jesus has both royal and priestly genes, uh, which, if it's true, would be kind of cool because he is the priest king. Um, but we, we can't really know for, for sure which side of the family that that was on. But there are many other details that had to be controlled for this story to work out. God had to make, and it was God who made Elizabeth infertile for all of these years up to the time of John. Fertility and infertility is from God and has its purposes. It was not by accident that Israel was in a backslidden condition during that time being reigned by a very cruel tyrant, Herod. Um, it was not by accident that Zacharias was by lot assigned to be ministering that particular day or that the, the, um, the, the whole scheme of their different uh, divisions, the division of Abijah, would be ministering during those uh, couple of weeks. Um, it was not by accident that John would be born six months earlier than Jesus and start his ministry earlier than Jesus because he had to be the forerunner pointing to Jesus. He had to be born just when he was. And so I guess the point is that we need to realize God is in the smallest details of our lives, including the heartbreaking frustrations that sometimes plague us. Though Satan was trying to weave sinister threads into the plot of Elizabeth's life, God was taking those same threads and counterweaving something masterful and beautiful. And so I want to start by looking at her background. Verse 5 shows that Elizabeth was from the family line of Aaron, the high priest, and Zacharias himself was a Levite who was authorized by God to work in the Holy of Holies, and that's why John the Baptist could later baptize without people thinking, this is weird, why is he doing this? He was a pastor, he was a Levite. And uh, Levites regularly baptized converts and their families. Verse 5 says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Uh, it's okay to spell Elizabeth with an S or a Z, as is in the case of the New King James here. And uh, we'll see that even though she didn't have children, her name actually shows, uh, there are differences of view of what the, the name means, but it, it, it comes from the Hebrew Elishaba, and um, it means God is my fullness or my happiness. So even though Elizabeth uh, was barren, she had learned by God's grace to find fullness and satisfaction in God. Now, others claim that the name means my God is an oath. In other words, he's totally trustworthy. Uh, God was her joy, her reward, that she completely trusted her. So either meaning of the name Elizabeth, and maybe you guys come up with others, uh, commentators say they're not exactly 100% sure. Um, but um, uh, either meaning fits the name Elizabeth. And unlike two of the sons of the original Elizabeth, Nadab and Abihu, 
her son was going to be completely faithful servant of God in the midst of a very apostate uh, nation. And so there may be a deliberate contrast that was intended between this Elizabeth and the first Elizabeth, who was the wife of Aaron. Verse 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now that is quite a testimony. Um, it doesn't mean that they didn't have sin in their hearts, but it does mean that they had achieved such a high degree of holiness that other people did not see any outward sinful behavior. She and her husband were both righteous, daily walked in God's commandments and ordinances so faithfully that no one could accuse them of breaking God's law. Now, the word commandments refers to the moral law, the word ordinances probably refers either to the ceremonial laws or to the case laws of God. But the point is they daily lived out the Bible. And this righteousness was not simply a horizontal righteousness where other people are fooled. Uh, it says here... Uh, that they were righteous before God. God approved of their walk. And that's significant for two reasons. First, it shows that it is, it is possible to be blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. Uh, though the book of Job later reveals that there was sin in Job's heart, and that's why even he recognized he needed to offer up daily sacrifices, the first verse says, Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And even after Satan brought catastrophe after catastrophe into his life, um, Job 1 verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. First uh, Timothy 3 verses 2 and 10 show that elders and deacons are supposed to be blameless. And it's not just elders and deacons. It's supposed to be uh, Christians are supposed to get to that place. Here's Philippians 2, and there's other verses along the same lines. Philippians 2, 14 through 15 says, You too can be like Elizabeth. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, it's not just a theoretical uh, blamelessness, okay? He wants your testimony to the world to be blameless, showcasing the grace of God. Now, the reason I bring up these scriptures is that it's, it is possible to overemphasize the total depravity of man. And I think in reform circles, this sometimes is a, a tendency, uh, but we so overemphasize total depravity that we don't recognize the radical change that comes into a person's life when he is regenerated. He's given a new heart, new orientations, new desires, new power, new direction. Now, does he fall? Yes, he does. Toddlers fall all the time, right? And so new Christians are going to fall. But God expects there to be growth in every Christian till they get to the place where they can live victoriously, so victoriously that they're blameless, okay? Now you still are gonna have to confess the sins of your heart and lack of faith and bad motives and pride occasionally rearing its head and fleeting bad thoughts and occasional bad attitudes, but you eventually catch those inward sins so quickly and confess them that they do not manifest outwardly. 
So don't allow the fact that we corporately confess the sins of the bride as a whole to make you not even try to be holy. Some people just feel like, what's the point? You know, we are, uh, everything is uh, tainted by sin. I know one antinomian uh, reformed professor of a, of a reformed seminary who justifies his addictions and uh, he does so because he says, hey, it elevates grace and it elevates justification. No, it does not. It slanders God's grace. Titus 2 would say it slanders his grace because God's grace was designed to make us deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And in verse 14 it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So that professor was not appropriating the grace that Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, did. Um, now it's true, all of us are daily going to need God's forgiveness and grace, but it is also true that God's grace will enable us to walk blameless in a perverse world. So the point is, we must set our aim for sanctification much, much higher than we tend to. Now the second reason this statement is significant is that they were without child. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. The Pharisees had a tendency to blame childless, childlessness on sin. And the reason they did that is because Deuteronomy 28 promised uh, fruitfulness as one of the blessings of the covenant. And they said, well, if she doesn't have children, she must be in sin. This must reflect God's judgment upon uh, her life. And so at least the Pharisees and perhaps others would have assumed that she was in sin. Otherwise, she'd be pregnant by now. And verse 25 refers to this reproach that others were assuming and making about her. But here's the thing, God loved this couple. He approved of their lifestyle. He saw that they walked in his forgiveness and grace. They were not childless because of God's disapproval. This was not a discipline in their life. And that should be a comfort to those who have not been able to have children. God has his purposes. But this didn't make them passive about their condition either. Interestingly, even though she was way past menopause, they both still prayed for a child. Where do I get that from? Well, when the angel comes to Zacharias, verse 13 records, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. A number of my commentators uh, say that they just absolutely insist the grammar necessitates that the prayer that was heard was a prayer to have a child, okay? Given the fact that Elizabeth was both barren and past menopause, that would require a miracle, and yet he prays for it. This seems to indicate that they both knew nothing is too difficult for El Shaddai. In fact, the first time that name was given was with barren Sarah, wasn't it? Nothing is too difficult for him. They knew um, that God could do this, and God now answers this prayer that they have not stopped praying. And to me, this is one of many indicators that we don't need to be passive about issues related to infertility. We should do what we can and trust God with the results. And uh, God was obviously behind this infertility because he wanted John to be recognized far and wide as an unusual child with an unusual upbringing and an unusual mission preparing the way for Messiah. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to be seeing that Zacharias actually 
doesn't believe his own prayer that he was praying. <laughs> and uh, he's rebuked by the angel for his unbelief. So why is he praying this? It could have been just a habit, a habit of life. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if he was praying out of habit because Elizabeth still had hope. She was not rebuked for her unbelief. In any case, there was prayer for a child. Verses 14 through 17 show the incredible joy that this child would bring. And we can't cover everything in these uh, amazing verses, but uh, let's at least read them. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. So it appears that he would be a Nazarite. Uh, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. I wish I could preach on every phrase in that, uh, that section. But I want to particularly focus on what an unusual child Elizabeth would be raising. She would be raising a child that was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time that he was in his mother's womb. This wouldn't mean that John was sinless, but it would indicate a much easier child to raise in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. John would much more quickly connect with the disciplines and the instructions uh, given from Scripture than a child who was not filled with the Holy Spirit. And it shows to me that we should pray for our children that they would be captured by the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, become passionate about His Word. His upbringing in this home was perfect preparation for John to be able to prepare for the Messiah. But Zacharias, who had been praying for a child, perhaps out of a habit now, suddenly stumbles in faith. And how many times do we do exactly the same thing? You know, we pray, and then we leave our prayers acting as if God's not going to answer that prayer. I think this happens very, very uh, often. Again, just reading verses 18 through 23. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute, not able to speak, until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Oops. <laughs> He's praying for a child and is skeptical that it will happen even when an angel sent from God tells him it's going to happen, okay? And so, yes, such lack of faith can happen even to such blameless people, okay? It's hard to persevere in praying for something without your faith waning over time. It shouldn't, but it can. And it's another illustration that being blameless does not mean being sinless. Verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long at the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now, when he got home, he wouldn't be able to communicate by voice, but in a later verse, we're going to discover that he carried around a tablet, and he was just writing all the time on his tablet to communicate to, uh, to people. 
And we have no inkling that Elizabeth doubted the words that came from her husband. She knew a miracle had taken place with his muteness, his being able to see an angel, the message that came from the angel. And it seems she just had a simple faith to believe this, uh, this message. Now, of course, God uses means, and so they are intimate. Verse 24 says, Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived. Intimacy in old age is not wrong, as some people suppose. Uh, in fact, it is commanded. Proverbs 5.19, Let her breast satisfy you at all times, not just when she is young, and always be enraptured by her love, not just when she is young. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7.5, Do not deprive one another. Come together again so that Satan does not tempt you. And the desire to be a mother is a God-given desire. But we see something very unusual happening in verse 24. Rather than excitedly telling all of her friends that she's now pregnant, no, she doesn't say a word to her friends. It says she hid herself five months. There have been all kinds of conjectures and why it was that she uh, hid herself, especially since, uh, if you do any research, there was no Jewish custom whatsoever to hide yourself during the first five months of pregnancy. Maybe later in the pregnancy, but commentators say, yeah, that's not a custom that they had. Why would she hide herself? But the way Luke writes verses 24 through 25 seems to indicate a very God-centered reason. And she hid herself five months, saying, and here comes her reason for hiding herself, because the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is not about what other people would think. This was a God thing, and she was going to focus on God and communion with God for most of those five months. Now, she could have very easily taken away her reproach that the people had given to her by just excitedly telling them you know, that, she was, that she was pregnant. She's not worried about what others think. She has a God-centered focus here. And even in that, she is a model to us to get to the place where we are not driven by what other people think. We are much more driven by what God thinks of us. Verse 26 shows that Mary will get pregnant in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, in my book on uh, December 25, Jewish style, I get into some of the tiny details like this reference to six months to deal with a very complicated chronology, but I believe that all of the pieces fit together to point to a December 25th birth in AD. Uh, B.C. 5, 5 B.C., or the second possibility is uh, January 6, birth in B.C., in uh, 4 B.C., getting the, the things mixed around. Uh, I'm not going to get into any of that today, but in verse 36, we have a controversy. The angel is communicating with Mary that she will have a baby, and the angel says, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. <clears throat> now the, the controversy is how could Mary be a relative of Elizabeth? And actually, seven of the translations I have translate this as your cousin. That's a possible way of translating it. How could they be related, let alone be cousins, when Elizabeth and Mary clearly came from totally different tribes? Luke 1.5 makes it clear that Elizabeth was descended from the line of Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi. But Luke 3 indicates Mary's father was Heli of the tribe of Judah. 
And Hebrews 7.14 makes it clear that Jesus arose from the tribe of Judah. And Romans 1.3 speaks of Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So Mary has to be a descendant of David, not a descendant of Levi, as some people have conjectured. For Jesus to be of the seed of David according to the flesh, his flesh was derived from Mary, right? Mary would have to be from the line of David. And so people have puzzled on how the two of them could be related. And the solution is actually quite uh, easy. Either Elizabeth's mother was from the tribe of Judah and had been adopted into the tribe of Levi by marriage, or Mary's mother was from the tribe of Levi and had been adopted into the tribe of Judah. Really, all that matters for Mary's line to be of the tribe of David is for each father to have descended from uh, David. And, and that was clearly the case. Now, last week, I said off the cuff that Elizabeth's mother was adopted from Judah into Levi, uh, but it could have been the reverse. Frederick Godet uh, prefers to think that it was Mary's mother who was adopted from Levi into Judah. Uh, it's a possibility. Here's what he says. There was no law to oblige an Israelitish maiden to marry into her own tribe. Mary's father, even if he was of the tribe of Judah, might therefore have espoused a woman of the tribe of Levi. So built right into the immediate story of Elizabeth and Mary, we have yet another indication that intertribal marriage was not frowned on by God at all. God made provision for it. And as I mentioned earlier, if it was Mary's mother who crossed tribal lines, then it would mean that she had both, uh, he had both priestly and royal blood, which is a cool thought. Um, now again, since scripture doesn't say we can't know which ancestor did the crossover during the marriage, but there's absolutely no problem in calling Elizabeth and Mary cousins and calling John and Jesus first cousins. I mean, second cousins. Elizabeth and Mary would be first, right? Okay. Now, verses 39 through 56 cover Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Now, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Even during the first months of pregnancy, hospitality can be a way of serving the Lord. But the mere arrival of Mary produced a prophecy as the Holy Spirit, who was in both women, celebrated this first meeting of the two unborn children. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed... As soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So we have the Holy Spirit at work in four people here, in Elizabeth and John, and in Mary and in Jesus. For John to leap with joy at recognizing this voice indicates to me it would have required some prophetic recognition of the presence of the Messiah. And infants within the womb have been shown to know far more than what we used to think that they did. Joy is a rational attribute, and there are scriptures that speak of babies trusting God in the womb, sinning in the womb, knowing things in the womb. 
I highly, highly recommend that moms and dads read good, godly books to your children in the womb and play worship music and avoid any kind of movies that might be toxic to the emotional health of your child. Uh, there are uh, quite a number of studies that show that children are quite aware of the sounds that are going on around in their environment while they're in the womb. And this is one of several scriptures that indicate I think we need to be, we exercise great care in providing a nurturing environment in our unborn uh, babies. You know, some of the sounds on even decent movies can be so frightening, you know, that it, it, could, it could negatively impact children. Just a thought. And moving on, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and she utters a remarkable prophecy that spoke of the kingdom realities that both women had anticipated for much, much, a long, long time. I won't preach on it, but I will read it because it would have powerfully impacted Elizabeth. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now the next verse says, Mary stayed with uh, Elizabeth uh, three, uh, three whole months. In other words, I think it was for the duration of her pregnancy. I'll have to ask David to calculate that. But anyway, she left before the delivery happened. Um, but anyway, during those three months, uh, the two of them no doubt talked endlessly and excitedly about the coming messianic kingdom and the exciting things that God was about to do. Uh, Mary was young enough to be Elizabeth's daughter, and so I'm sure there was a lot of helpful advice and guidance that Elizabeth gave to her. Their two sons would be about the same age, both were called to the ministry, and there would have been a ton to talk about. But Mary leaves just before it is time for Elizabeth to go into labor. And speaking of labor and birth, we see how God-centered Elizabeth was even in this birth. Uh, verses 57 through 58 show the first thing that comes out of her mouth after the baby was born. She's talking to the midwife and to her friends about the Lord. It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. They heard it from her, right? How the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Elizabeth is rejoicing in God's mercies. They are rejoicing in God's mercies. Now, I'm sure there was a lot of ooing and aahing over the baby, too, but it was a God-centered event. I mean, they're, they're recognizing this is something from the Lord himself. And then comes the circumcision and the naming of the baby. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened, 
and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came, and all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now let's tease that section apart. First of all, as faithful parents, they recognize that it's not just them who is in covenant with God. All that they are and all that they have is in covenant with God, and that includes their baby. God claims our babies as belonging to him, as part of his covenant. He continues to do so. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision. The sign of the covenant in the New Testament was baptism. And all the way back to Genesis 17, God commanded the sign of the covenant to be applied to infants on the eighth day and said that those who were not circumcised would be cut off from the covenant and from its privileges and protections. Okay, the early church understood this connection. That's why all the way up to AD 253, many in the church appear to have baptized uh, their uh, babies on the eighth day after birth, uh, whatever day of the week that that might have uh, fallen on. And thus, Fidus, who was the moderator of a large presbytery, wrote a circular in AD 250 to all of the churches in his presbytery saying, don't delay baptism um, uh, uh, until the, uh, uh, yeah, don't delay the baptism. Um, he said, it's got to be on the eighth day, is basically what he said. And apparently some people have been preferring to baptize their babies on Sunday, arguing that this is the new covenant. Uh, what, what the eighth day was significant of was the new covenant Sabbath. But anyway, he disagreed with them. And so these people were baptizing their infants on day one, three, five, whatever um, the Sunday was after birth. And the moderator of the presbytery opposed that. He said, no, the law mandates that the sign of the covenant be applied on the eighth day after birth. Um, they couldn't decide this at the presbytery, so they appealed it to the General Assembly. And at the Council of Carthage, the General Assembly met to discuss this issue in 253 AD. And at that council, he, it was settled that babies could be baptized on Sunday, even if it was earlier or later than the eighth day. And if you want to see all the reasons, they've written down a whole bunch of reasons that were all consistent with baptism replacing circumcision. But they said, really, the eighth day throughout the Old Testament, not just on circumcision, but on days, was all prophetic of the New Covenant Sabbath. And I find it significant that there is no evidence that anyone objected to infant baptism at this time in any of the presbyteries in that General Assembly. In fact, almost a hundred years earlier, elders from other presbyteries like Justin Martyr, Aristides, Clement of Alexandria spoke of baptism as being an apostolic practice. Church fathers in the second and third century did the same. Uh, Irenaeus, who is uh, taught by Polycarp, and Polycarp was taught by the Apostle John, uh, he said, we apply baptism to infants and little ones and children and youths and older persons. And he wrote that in AD 180. That's pretty early. Origen said, the church has a tradition from the apostles to give baptism even to infants. And so you see this all throughout the church is that people practiced infant baptism as a replacement of circumcision. Hippolytus said the same in AD uh, 215. So, 
The point is the church has never stopped including children in the covenant, and the first church council at which any controversy at all was raised over infant baptism was raised in AD 253, and it was only on which day the sign should be applied to the infant. They all believed in infant baptism. So infant baptism was universally practiced. Sunday was treated as the equivalent to the eighth day. Well, the second thing that I notice here is that they were planning to name this child when it was circumcised. The father usually named the child, but in this case he couldn't speak, and so the mom spoke on his behalf. And when they asked the father if that was so, he wrote on the tablet in verse 63, his name is John. So he named the child. And this practice explains why during the first 1,500 years of church history, parents named their children at baptism. It was a carryover from circumcision. Third, this circumcision did not save John. Luke 1.15 tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit long before he was circumcised. It says he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So that is proof positive that circumcision did not save him. He was already saved, and Christ didn't need to be saved when he was circumcised. So don't ever think that circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New Testament saves our children. It's the sign of the covenant. Only spirit baptism saves, and that can come before, during, or after water baptism. But fourth, don't ever think that this sign is unimportant. It is a sign and a seal of God's grace. Now, when the sign of the covenant was applied to John, Zacharias referred to God's oath, which he swore to our father Abraham, verse 23. God didn't just give a sign. He gave an oath that he would fulfill what the sign signified. In other words, it was a seal. It was a pledge that God would fulfill what he promised. And that's why Romans 4.11 calls circumcision a sign and a seal. A seal is a pledge. See, at the heart of every covenant is God's promise that I will be a God to you and to your children after you. That's God's covenant oath. When we baptize our children, we take vows to raise our children in the fear and nurture of the Lord, because that's, that's an indispensable part of covenant keeping, Genesis 18, 19. But God is also making an oath that he will bless our nurture of these children. And if the baby is not already saved, God will honor the parent's faith by saving that child at some point in the future. It's God's oath of the covenant. So take comfort in the fact that baptism is a seal or a pledge, just like circumcision was. A fifth thing we see in John's circumcision is given in Luke 1.50, which says, His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his children forever. So this is dealing with covenant succession. You're seeing this comes up uh, repeatedly, don't you? To be part of the covenant was to have God claim your children and your children's children. Now, since... When you come into covenant with God, you give him yourself, you give him all that you are and have. Well, it makes sense. You're going to give him your children as well. Okay? He owns them. He claims them. And then God gives them back to you as a stewardship trust. So in Ezekiel 16, he speaks of your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me and then calls them my children. That's Ezekiel 16, 20 through 21. So yes, they're your sons and daughters in one sense, but they are God's children, his property in another sense. And so Isaiah 40, uh, 
says that God not only owns the adult believing sheep who are in his flock, but he claims their children as part of his flock. Speaking of the new covenant, it says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So God's covenant is a family covenant. God told Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that hasn't changed. Acts 3.25 quotes that verse and says it continues today. It says that in Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what baptism signifies. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus says, allow the little children to come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. They're at least outwardly in the kingdom. They belong to his flock. Okay, he protects them, he cares for them. Well, the moment Zacharias agreed that his name was John, his speech was restored by God and he prophesied. What a joyful thing it would have been for Elizabeth to have, I was going to call him a dumb, uh, that is an older word, but a speechless husband who's now prophesying. And the result was that people began to realize John was going to be something very, very special. And again, I don't have time to preach on everything in his speech, but this too would have given great joy and confirmation to Elizabeth of God's plans for John. Let me read that beginning at verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now Jesus pays tribute to Elizabeth when he describes John the Baptist in these words. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. It would have been a huge responsibility uh, to train and raise up such an important person, but God had already prepared Elizabeth and Zacharias to be able to do that. And from the results of John's life, we can see that their training was good. But what are some additional applications that we can make from the life of Elizabeth? Well, first, we're never too old to serve God. Zacharias didn't retire from ministry, even though he was very old. Now I've uh, tongue-in-cheek told our officers that they need to have a, 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 you know, one of those hooks to drag me out of the pulpit if I start going senile up here. But if the Lord preserves my mind and my strength, I really don't want to retire. I'd be happy to continue serving after I am 90. And Elizabeth herself continued to serve in her old age. It's a lot of work to raise a son. Just imagine raising a son as a 70-year-old. Uh, and who knows, maybe she was older than that. We weren't told what her age was. Sarah was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac. 
lot of work, but that work is service to God. Uh, just as they had prayed for a son, they no doubt continued to pray. Elizabeth ministered to her husband on many levels, including sexual. She ministered to Mary. We're never too old to serve God. God certainly does not put us on a shelf. Now, some people are so feeble, the most that they can do is maybe write letters or pray. But that, too, is service. While you can certainly retire from a given job, never retire from serving God. That's the first lesson. Second, children truly are a gift from God. It's not just miracle children like John who are a gift. Every child is said to be a gift from God and the work of God's creation, creative fashioning. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. They're not a burden. They're not something to be avoided. They're a reward. Uh, we know we're living in a godless culture when people either abort babies or abandon babies or don't want to have babies. Babies are a gift from God. Psalm 139, verses 13 and following, describe God fashioning each child in the womb. We must be a people who value children as a gift from God. Third, our God is a God of miracles. This was truly a miracle. Now, theological liberals don't believe in miracles because it does not comport with their scientific principles, you know, that they've gotten from secular science. I use the word science loosely there because the Bible would say that's not really science. That's science falsely so-called is the way King James uh, words it. But they're imposing external principles on what God can and cannot do. No, God will not be put into a box by liberals and he will not be put into a box by conservatives. There are many conservatives who don't believe in continuing miracles today. Miracles make them feel uncomfortable. But our God cannot be put into a box. He has never stopped acting on behalf of his people, and we continue to experience miracles at God's good pleasure. We cannot command miracles, but he can. Fourth, our faithfulness, patience, and godly vision can be passed on to a child. Uh, John was a remarkable person, but I believe he was remarkable in part, at least, because his parents were remarkable and blameless and faithful. Uh, obviously, it's all of grace, but God's grace works through means as well, and involved parents is one of those means. And they must have been just as faithful in serving God by raising John as they had been faithful in serving God before John was born. And that faithfulness paid off. You can pass on a godly vision and patience and faithfulness to the next generation. Now, there's no guarantees, but it really should be what we expect. Fifth, we should never reproach those who don't or can't have children. Chapter 1, verse 25 says that God took away her reproach. Now, the Greek word for reproach is onedos, and it means loss of standing connected with disparaging speech, disgrace, reproach, or insult. Now, they may not have said it to her face, but uh, she could feel the loss of standing. Maybe she was a second-class citizen in the eyes of some people. We must not reproach those who do not yet have children. Pray for them, yes, but don't judge. I've had people come to me in tears because they have been trying to have children for years, and people assume that because they don't yet have children, they don't want to have children. That's a kind of reproach. Don't assume and don't judge. The last application I will make is that though Elizabeth was incredibly blessed to be the mother of the forerunner of Jesus, be the mother of the greatest of the Old Testament saints, Jesus said, all of you 
are greater. Okay? Greater than her son, and therefore greater than her in some sense, precisely because you are in the time of the kingdom. Now, earlier I quoted the first half of Matthew 1.11, but let me quote the whole verse. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. They had looked forward to the coming of the kingdom of heaven, heaven invading earth. They longed for that kingdom. Well, brothers and sisters, we are living in the time of the kingdom. It is progressively invading earth, winning people, and will one day, according to Acts 3.25, bless all the families of the earth. That's pretty universal. What a privilege it is to be in the time of the kingdom. Now, yes, we have to fight to possess what rightfully belongs to Jesus, just as there was fighting by Joshua to possess Canaan, but the earth has been given to the saints, so the Great Commission calls us to disciple all nations, teaching them all the word, uh, trusting that Christ right now has all the authority that he needs, and that he is with us all of the days. Rejoice that you are greater than John the Baptist, and may such rejoicing result in faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the life of Elizabeth. And I pray that we would learn from this, not to grow disheartened or discouraged, no matter what setbacks that we might have in life, that uh, we might uh, aspire to be blameless before you, to be God-centered in the way that we think and talk and do in all of our lives. Please be with this, your people, Father. Sanctify them, cause them to grow in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.